Welcome back, everyone, to the 49ers Plus podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and today we'll be recapping the 13 to nothing win over the New Orleans Saints, discuss a few unfortunate but hopefully short-term injuries coming out of that game, going to share some interesting Jimmy G stats with everybody, and then preview this upcoming game's week's this upcoming week's game, excuse me, against the Miami Dolphins. In the plus section, we're going to discuss some college football, starting off with Matt Rule, former Carolina Panthers head coach, was fired. He has been rehired by the Nebraska Cornhuskers. We'll talk about the top four in the BCS. We'll talk about upcoming championship weekend in college football. We're going to rank all the Star Wars shows on Disney Plus and, like always, conclude making this upcoming week's NFL picks. So let's get into it. Let's talk Niners. All right, and let's start, like always, with some stats. Total yardage, 317 to 260 for San Francisco. New Orleans had two turnovers. San Francisco, none. Time of possession in favor of the 49ers by 9 minutes and 30 seconds. And first down, San Francisco also had the edge, 21 to 14. Jimmy, 26 of 37, 222 yards, one touchdown through the air, and he did take one sack. Andy Dalton for the Saints, 18 of 29, 204 yards, and also took a sack at the end of the game to really seal it for the 49ers. Running the ball, not a great output performance for San Francisco. Elijah Mitchell, 7 rushes for 35 yards. McCaffrey, 11 rushes for 32 yards. And rookie Jordan Mason, who I've been pounding the table about lightly for the past couple weeks, came in at the end of the game, five rushes for 25 yards to really salt the game away and get it on the other side of the two-minute warning. As a team, San Francisco, 29 rushes for 96 yards, 3.3 yards a carry. Obviously not great. Andy Dalton was the leading rusher for the Saints, four for 21. Taysom Hill, six for 14. And Alvin Kamara, they really bottled up seven for 13 as a team. 22 rushes for 63 yards, so under three yards a carry. Receiving again, Ayuk leading the receiving charge, five for 65. Jawan Jennings went six for 49 and one touchdown. Debo Samuel, three for 43. Uh, George Kittle, three for 26. And McCaffrey, four for 17. For the Saints, it was really almost a two-man show. Chris Olave, the great-looking rookie out of Ohio State, went five for 62. Alvin Kamara, 6 for 37. Pro football focus, offensive leaders, running back, or highest graded rather, running back Jordan Mason, although he only played nine snaps, tackle Trent Williams, wide receiver Jawan Jennings, receiver Ray McLeod, that's based on only seven snaps on offense, and guard Daniel Brunskill, who was rotating in with Spencer Buford, but once Buford went out with an ankle injury, he played the remainder of the game on defense. Linebacker Fred Warner, defensive end Samson Ebucom, cornerback Charvarius Ward, and linebackers Dre Greenlaw and Aziz Al Shire. So 13-0. If you didn't watch the game and you just even listened to the stats, you'd figure, well, you know, San Francisco pretty much dominated the game. And in a way, they did, but it was only a two-score game, and it wasn't really thir- – it was uh, 10-0 at the half, 13-0 in the third quarter. So the Saints were never really out of this game. Uh, it's an ugly game. It's an ugly win. San Francisco got a gritty win. I think someone on the team, I think it might have been Shanahan or, or Garoppolo in a pro- post-game press conference, called it a grimy win. But, you know, good teams 
need to win these types of games. Not everything is going to look like 38 to 10 against the Cardinals. There are times where San Francisco's offense is going to struggle. The Saints are a top 10 defense or just outside of it. I think they're ranked 11th overall. This is that's a good defense that they played against and a defense that has gotten healthier than they've been in the past month. Um they in San Francisco, you know, they need to win without being able to generate much pressure. They did not really get much pressure on Dalton at all or even Taysom Hill when he came in at quarterback until the sack at the end of the game by Nick Bosa, which ultimately salted the the game away for, for San Francisco. What the Niners did do and that they have been doing all year, they played great run defense. <clears throat> they caused running back Alvin Kamara to fumble in the first quarter on a run. They caused him to fumble in the fourth quarter on a catch and run. You know, it's always you always see it when someone is trying to fight for the extra yard. Kamara got spun around. Safety Talano Hufunga came in, put a shoulder and a helmet on the ball, popped it loose. Tight end for the Saints um, had a, a chance at making a play, but as he was diving for it, he got knocked away by a 49er. Niners recover at the one-yard line to keep the shutout and, and the win alive. And San Francisco got lucky at times. And, you know, everyone says sometimes it's always better to be lucky than good. It would be generally great to be both. Jimmy threw an ill-advised interception. It looked like it was either a check down or an in to a receiver. He threw it way ahead of him, right into the arms of rookie Elante Taylor, who took it back to the 10-yard line of San Francisco. But there was a legal contact on the Saints in their secondary. Um, it wasn't a made-up flag. It was a legitimate flag. But again, sometimes you need to be lucky a little bit as well. <clears throat> the Saints were driving in San Francisco territory. I believe it was in the third quarter. Um, there was a penalty on the Saints on third down. They could have had it fourth down at around the 30 or, or, or 27. But instead, Shanahan took the 10 yards, backed them up. Saints did nothing with it. Another incomplete pass. And kicker Will Lutz had a relatively long field goal. I think it was 52, 53 yards, which he pushed to uh, wide left. So again, three more points off the board. Lucky that they got that penalty. Smart decision that Shanahan took the 10 yards. And maybe if it was five yards, he wouldn't have pushed him back. But the fact that it was 10 that they did. And then, of course, again, that fumble by Kamara inside the five-yard line. They had two drives where they stopped the Saints inside the 10-yard line, the second being the last offensive drive that the Saints had. Now, people that are going to be crying and, and complaining about, oh, San Francisco didn't look good, look, Jimmy's back to normal, you know, slow, slow your roll there for a second. Good teams make those plays and make those stops. San Francisco got stops when they had to, and they made plays when they had to. The Saints had the opportunity to make plays twice inside the 10 and on defense to get more stops than they did. And they didn't. And that's why that they're a four and seven or four and eight team, whatever their, their record is. There's nothing against or wrong with winning a game ugly, you know, go back to the movie white men can't jump. But I think there are fans out there that have the, the train of thought that I guess, um, Billy Hoyle played by William, uh, uh, Woody Harrelson did, when he was talking to um, his partner, and I can't believe I'm uh, blanking on his name, but he said, "You, uh, you know, you'd rather look good and lose than look bad and win." I'll, I'll look bad and win all day. San Francisco looked bad and lost against the Bears Week One. 
they looked bad and lost against the Broncos a few weeks later. Looking at that, wouldn't you rather have had those games be ugly, look bad, and win one, if not both of those games? How much more separation that they would have over Seattle and the NFC West and a tip of the cap to the Raiders and Josh Jacobs for beating Seattle in overtime, giving San Francisco basically a one and a half game lead over, over the Seahawks uh, in the NFC West. Good teams win ugly. Good teams can overcome not less than ideal play across the board. You know, the defense played well enough until it got inside the 10, then they really ratcheted it up, but the Saints were moving the ball. Um, the Niners took the runaway, but Andy Dalton had a relatively nice game. He didn't throw an interception. He played a pretty clean game. He was only sacked once, um, but the Niners' defense stiffened when it needed to. What's interesting is... <clears throat> and this is a stat given by the broadcast, the 49ers defense for as good as they are, number one overall, number one against the run, you know, number seven, eight against the pass, whatever it may be. They are the worst in the league on third down and short, which I'm taking to mean third and one or third and two. They allow teams to convert 78% of the time. And I don't know if this is because they generally rely on a four-man line. So when it's third and one, third and two, a running down, a money down, that the offense is generally going to run the ball. They they just can't prevent the two-yard gain, one or two-yard gain. That was an interesting stat. But the one that's most important, this is the fourth straight game where the defense has pitched a second-half shutout. They got a full-game shutout, and they have held teams scoreless in the last seven quarters. Now, the ask gets to be a bit bigger this week against Miami, and we will get there momentarily. And San Francisco may be facing Miami uh, minus a few players who came up with some injuries yesterday against the Saints. Let's start out with some minor things. Debo, who had a hamstring injury going into the game, injured his quad. Uh, he's played through it. He should be fine for the Miami game. McCaffrey had a bit of knee irritation during the game, sat out for a series, came back in and played. He should be okay. The bigger injuries, Elijah Mitchell, who had an MCL sprain or tear at, after week one and was out for two months, had an MCL sprain in his other knee. The team does not believe it's as serious as what he experienced at the beginning of the season, but he should be out for a few weeks. And starting guard, rotational guard, Spencer Buford, has an ankle injury, he will probably miss the game against Miami. So how this is actually going to shake out, I think, for San Francisco. So Daniel Brunskill just slide in at right guard. He's been rotating there with Buford, so there isn't really you know much of a, a drop-off or anything different that the line needs to do. I think running back Tevin Coleman will be elevated from the practice squad. I think between the other available options of Jordan Mason, who I like a lot, Ty Davis-Price, Tevin Coleman is the most natural pass catcher of those three. And Jordan Mason looked good on his five carries. He is a hard-nosed, strong, powerful runner. Um, but for this Miami game, I mean, it's going to have to be what, what Kyle's going to want to do. Does he want to try to throw with Miami? Does he want to try to slow it down? Knowing that McCaffrey has some knee irritation, does he activate Ty Davis-Price as well to get four running backs on the field? The only reason Price hasn't been activated the past couple of weeks is because Jordan Mason is playing special teams and Price does not. But I, I don't know. I don't know where you sacrifice another 
player or position to get to activate four running backs because you technically have use check as a fullback and not every team in the league carries a fullback so there technically is your four running backs and of course you can move Debo into that role as well assuming you know his leg or legs hamstring and quad um, is okay so coming off of injuries let's talk Jimmy because Jimmy is always the topic of conversation and I think between the broadcast and doing a little bit of research There's some fun stuff and some interesting stuff that I think you should know. First, if you were watching the game, Jimmy was 20 of 28 for 175 yards and a touchdown in the first half. 28 attempts is Jimmy's most first half attempts ever in a game. Now, did Jimmy get a little bit lucky? Yes, he got away with throwing an interception in the first half. Penalty on the Saints, I mentioned earlier, gave the ball back to San Francisco and a first down. He has been throwing the ball away more. Noticed it three more times this game. He is not taking sacks. The one sack that he took was somewhat unavoidable, but he did take a beating. He was sandwiched a couple times. He was getting the ball out right as he was getting hit to his checkdowns, to his outlets. And he did take uh, a low hit that he didn't mince words during the press conference that he thought someone went low on him. And the New Orleans Saints defensive lineman did go low on Jimmy, went for his legs. But you got to look more into this rule. Jimmy was rolling out of the pocket. Once he is outside where the tackle lines up and he is not actually in the pocket, quarterbacks don't get the protection that they do. When they are more stationary in the pocket, Jimmy was on the move. The Saints lineman did go low. Jimmy was down for a little bit, was able to walk it off. Kudos to him. Says, you know, at the in the postgame press conference, his knee was a little bit sore. But Jimmy was under duress for most of the game. Again, the Saints play a good defense. Not that scoring 13 points is anything that they should be, you know, high-fiving themselves over. But 13 to nothing. They did not make the big mistakes. They pinned the Saints deep a couple times. They held the Saints off when New Orleans was driving on inside the 20, inside the 10. And Jimmy, again, did his part a fourth straight game or more without an interception. And in case people didn't realize, and I didn't know this either, Jimmy has the fifth highest passer rating for a quarterback in NFL history. And he's, I forget the four that he's behind, but he is number five all time. And he has the seventh highest win percentage all time for a quarterback with at least 50 starts. And again, the Jimmy neutrals, the Jimmy haters, even the pro-Jimmy people are going to say, well, he's playing, you know, he's got a good defense behind him, he's got a good running game, they don't ask much of him, etc., etc. I get it. And I understand that the quarterbacks before him or after him or during him were Brian Hoyer, Nick Mullins, C.J. Beathard, and Trey Lance for essentially three and a half games. Kyle Shanahan's record, everyone knows it is much better with Jimmy than without Jimmy. And it's going to lead, I think, to if he keeps playing this well, they can make it into the playoffs. They can get to, say, the divisional round or the championship game, Super Bowl. Who knows how far this team can go? A lot can happen between now and the postseason. Injuries, teams getting hot, losing streak. You you just can't look too far ahead. But if Jimmy plays this consistently and, and something close to this the rest of the way, San Francisco... Front office, John Lynch, Kyle Shanahan, they're going to have a difficult decision to make, and that could be a podcast potentially for another time. 
But one stat, which is very San Francisco focused, 49er focused. And again, if you were watching the game, you had seen this, but I'll update it for everybody. In their first 60 games, Jimmy is 41 and 19. In Steve Young's first 60 games with the Niners, because he was on Tampa Bay before and they were terrible, he's 41 and 19. And in Joe Montana's first 60 games with San Francisco, 38 and 22. Now, yes, different eras, different teams. But again, winning is either a quarterback stat or a team stat. Coaching has a lot to do with it between Bill Walsh for Montana and some of Steve Young, George Seifert with Young, and he had some great coordinators with Mike Holmgren and Mike Shanahan. And now, obviously, Kyle Shanahan for Jimmy Garoppolo. But for the player that is so easily wanting to be thrown away, he is right up there with Young and have a, has a better record than Montana. And those are 49er teams that had good defenses. Let's not just say, you know, they were teams that were just offensive teams. And if you want to believe, and obviously they are, Steve Young and Montana are Hall of Famers, they are much better quarterbacks than Jimmy Garoppolo, then they should have been carrying teams on their own to a greater percentage of wins than maybe Garoppolo or, or the, the 49er team as a whole has. But 41-19, and 19, top of the class. And, you know, 2022 is different than 1987 when the Niners traded for Steve Young or the mid-'80s um, to the early-'90s when, when Joe Montana was there. But can you imagine if the Steve Young-Joe Montana situation was happening now with all of the 24-7 media attention, coast-to-coast media attention. You go back 30 years, 35 years, yeah, you you knew what was going on if you're on the East Coast, the West Coast, etc. But you didn't have this non-stop coverage like you do, and social media has really made it explode. Remember, Steve Young was brought in in 1987. He was traded from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to the 49ers. He was behind Montana in 87, 88, and 89. 88 and 89 were the Super Bowl wins over the Bengals and Broncos. During that time, though, Steve Walsh was rotating Young and Montana in at quarterback, and he did that more or less to piss both quarterbacks off and to get the best out of them. For as great as a coach that Bill Walsh was, he he knew what he was doing with that trade. Not that Montana was coasting or getting uh, complacent or anything like that, but he proactively brought in more either competition or a better quarterback backup than what they had, which is, again, my reasoning why all you spineless, weak-willed Jimmy haters or 49er fans that didn't want Jimmy on the roster this offseason because I don't want controversy, I don't want Jimmy or Trey Lance looking over his shoulder, I don't want this or that, grow up. Bill Walsh can do it. With two Hall of Famers, they weren't Hall of Famers at the time, although Montana was on his way. Kyle Shanahan can do it with Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo, and we all should be glad that he did. But going back to the Walsh situation, all right, so Walsh is rotating quarterbacks. We know it wound up getting hurt. So, so Bill Walsh retires after the Bengals Super Bowl. George Seifert becomes the head coach in 1989. Niners beat the Broncos in the Super Bowl. They are in the NFC Championship game against the Giants in 1990, going for a three-peat. They lose to the Giants. Joe Montana hurts his elbow. He's essentially out for the next two years. And what does Young do? So Young starts as the quarterback in 1991. They do not make the playoffs. Can you imagine what Twitter and news and Facebook and God, Instagram, TikTok, 
how fans would have been revolting that the new kid at quarterback did not lead the 49ers to the playoffs, if that were to be happening today. In 92 and 93, they lost to the Cowboys in the championship game. In 92 in San Francisco, in 93 in Dallas, and in 94, they got over the hump, beat Dallas, and beat San Diego in the Super Bowl. But during that time, it's not like Young was playing poorly. He was the MVP in 92, the MVP in 94, the Super Bowl year. He led the league in passer rating from 91 to 94, 96, and 97, and he led the league in touchdowns in 92, 93, 94, and 98. All said, one Super Bowl appearance, one Super Bowl win. 49er fans, if certain websites, if message boards, if Reddit, if Twitter, etc., would have existed between 1991 and when Young had to unfortunately retire due to uh, concussions, and it was either 98 or 99, I think 99, they would have been calling for his head every year they did not win the Super Bowl. 94 might have bought him an extra year or two, but they would have been calling for his head. And that's what fans, I, I still don't understand the outlook that they have like on Jimmy. 49er fans are 40 whiners. Because of the Steve Young, Joe Montana, it's very rare that you have a, a Hall of Fame quarterback followed up by another Hall of Fame quarterback. So that has become the standard. And Jeff Garcia had to endure it. And Alex Smith had to endure it. Colin Kaepernick, now Jimmy Garoppolo. Again, I keep saying there's nothing wrong being with a top 15 quarterback in the league. There's only 32 of these jobs, especially when you have no idea what Trey Lance is. But seeing what Jimmy has done before, NFC Championship game and a Super Bowl, granted both losses, they can do a lot worse. And I think it's going to make for some really interesting discussion um, moving forward in the offseason if Jimmy keeps playing this way. Now, one thing that I wanted to go to, and I realized after the fact that this was actually, and this is Jimmy related, so bear with me. Um, this was really when I went back and looked at it, the catalyst for why I created this podcast. And mainly it's because just like any fandom, there are a lot of dumb 49er fans out there. And I'm not saying I'm the smartest one, but I would put my money on being in the top 10% just in terms of being understanding the game, understanding the roster, what the coach wants to do, and being just level-headed in terms of free agent signings, what Jimmy can do, what, what he can't do. I'm not one of those people that, oh, he sucks. You should get him out of there. Jimmy's terrible. He's not terrible. If you're a starting quarterback, you're pretty darn good. Now, this is a post that I made on a certain website I frequent. I won't mention which one. May 15th, 2022. So for you who are not as into the NFL and follow every facet of it the way I do, this is after the draft. The draft is in April. This is in May. This is when they were still trying to trade Jimmy. There were no takers. Jimmy's rehabbing from his shoulder surgery. And I started flirting with the idea of, well, what if Jimmy comes back? What does it look like if Jimmy comes back? So what I wound up putting on this message board was a post and the title was, or is because it still exists and I'm reading it right now, at what salary would you be okay keeping Jimmy for 2022? And here's what I wrote. Okay, this is assuming no one trades for Jimmy and the Niners stay firm about not releasing him. They never said anything about restructuring or a pay cut. For reference, Teddy Bridgewater of the Miami Dolphins has a $6.5 million salary and cap hit this year, 2022, coming up. That's the highest for a backup quarterback by a good margin. Also for reference, Trey Lance's cap hit is $7.8 million for 2022. 
I can't imagine Jimmy wanting to stay, but if he sees this as his best opportunity to play and make some money, who knows? But what's a fair price for someone who may or may not compete for the starting job, may not play at all, or may play a ton if Trey struggles or gets hurt? Maybe $7 million with bonuses for starting games that could bring the total value to around 10. That's still a 15 plus million dollar cap savings over his existing contract, which was non-guaranteed last year, and that money can be rolled over to 2023. I know this topic will get absurd responses, but I'm hoping we could discuss fair compensation for a former starting quarterback, but would now be a backup quarterback. All right, I'm not Nostradamus. Again, I'm rarely the smartest person in the room, and if I am, then I, I, need, to fi- I need to find another room. But this is why you listen to this podcast. This is why I enjoy talking about San Francisco because I can do it in an even keel manner. Do I I yell and scream and curse during games? Of course. But I can look at a situation and easily diagnose something and understand what's best for the team. And I'm just going to keep saying it until I can't say it anymore, which will probably be never. If quarterback is the most important position in sports, then I want the strongest quarterback room possible. And if going into 2023 means Trey Lance is the starter and Brock Purdy as the backup, then the 49ers have failed their quarterback room next year. Doesn't mean Jimmy's going to be the quarterback, the starter, the backup, but it means you have to bring in a viable backup quarterback. You do not entrust your season to Brock Purdy, the last pick of the draft, Mr. Irrelevant next year, if something happens with Trey or if Trey just ain't it, there's the real possibility, everybody, that Trey Lance just isn't the guy. And for everybody in going into 2021, when Trey Lance was drafted, saying Trey Lance has got to start, you don't trade two first round picks and a third round pick and you have someone on the bench. That's why people are morons, especially if they are former NFL players that just are spouting nonsense on TV. You don't hand the keys to the kingdom to a kid who played one year of college football at a lower collegiate level at North Dakota State. Playing Jimmy was the right decision. They got to the NFC Championship game. They unfortunately didn't win it. Bringing Jimmy back for $6.5 million plus at least $250,000 for every game he starts, and he's going to make about twelve dollars or $13 million total. So I was... I was really close on the $7 million uh, salary. It's six and a half. And the bonuses that can get to get him to around 10, I'll get him to around 12 or 13. So I was really close on that. I still wouldn't take myself to Vegas or Atlantic city or bet on anything. But in terms of looking at something logically, there's just way too much stupidity when it comes uh, to NFLs and fans, just not thinking logically about stuff. Uh, All right, so let me get off my soapbox, even though it's a good one. So the 49ers now are a third of their way through the second half of their schedule. And I said the first third is very winnable, the second third is tough, and the final third is going to be very winnable. The first third, Chargers, Cardinals, New Orleans. I said they were winnable. They won them all. Now is where it gets tough. Miami at home, Tampa at home, and at Seattle. Then we get to the winnable portion to finish up at home for Washington, at Vegas, and at home for Arizona. To me, at 7-4, and four, if they win three games, they're guaranteed a playoff spot. Hell, the way that the Giants will probably collapse 
and Washington. There's really no other threat in terms of a wild card. Dallas or Philadelphia, Philadelphia is going to win the East. But the, but teams are going to start beating themselves up in the East that maybe nine wins could get San Francisco or a team a wild card spot. But I think they'll get to at least 10. Three wins to make the division, to, to make the playoffs. Four wins, 11 and six, I think, will win the West. Or if they go 10 and seven and only win three games, one of those wins has to be against Seattle. Even though Seattle lost against the Raiders and that was awesome, they still do have a pretty favorable schedule other than the having the 49ers come into Seattle, the Chiefs, I'm sorry, Seattle has to go to Kansas City. That's a tough game. The only other relatively tough game could be the Jets later on in the season at Seattle, but who knows how the Jets would perform as still a young team in that uh, environment. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with game one of the tough games versus Miami. Miami coming in. San Francisco is a three and a half point favorite against the Dolphins, which essentially means if this team, if this game was played on a neutral field, it'll be a push. If this game was played in Miami, Miami would be a three point favorite. Makes sense. Miami's got a good offense. They have a very pedestrian defense. We'll get into that. They're eight and three for a reason. San Francisco is seven and four. Now let's look at the stats. Offensively, the Fort uh, Miami is third overall offense. But like, here's the caveat: San Francisco's not in the top ten, but the Dolphins are averaging only twenty-eight more yards a game than San Francisco. That's it's like half of a drive. They're not walloping them overall. Passing, they are the um, number two team. Uh, rushing, they are 28th. They're only averaging about 95 rushing yards a game. And points, they are 6th. They are scoring 25.6 points a game. Their turnover differential is at 0. They are even. They have given the ball away just as much as they have taken away. So on defense, pedestrian. They're 17th overall. They're 22nd against the pass, 10th against the run, and 19th in points scored, allowing 23.3 points per game. Now, if you watch football, you know about the weapons. They made a big trade for Tyree Kill with the Chiefs, pairing him with um, Jalen Waddell. And they, they're probably the best one-two punch wide receivers in the league. Tyree Kill has, through 11 games, 87 receptions for over 1,200 yards, four touchdowns. Jalen Waddell, 56 receptions, 963 yards, and six touchdowns at running back. They're headlined by two former 49ers, Raheem Mostert. 118 carries, 543 yards, and three touchdowns. And Jeff Wilson's only been there for two or three weeks, but he already has 39 carries, 209 yards, and two touchdowns. And Chase Edmonds, part of the um, trade, uh, a part of a, a midseason trade, they he is their number number three running back. So a little bit of trash talking now. Raheem Mostert has come out and said, we have way better talent than here than they do. We have a quarterback who could sling it. Now, Mostert has a reason to be a bit salty for San Francisco. Last year, he got hurt week one or week two. He opted for season-ending surgery. San Francisco thought that he could rehab and play in eight weeks. He didn't want to. And listen, good for him. Like He did what was in the best interest of his career. He's 29 or 30 years old. He's not going to get many more bites at the apple until you know, teams want to sign someone younger and cheaper. So I give him credit. I, he did what was, what was right for him, but he's still, he's in a better situation now and he's still kind of holding a grudge. 
if San Francisco re-signed him, they still would have had Mitchell. Who knows if they would have made the McCaffrey trade. He's in a he's in a good spot. Um Miami, though, being an eight and three team, what's interesting when you look at their record. So they started off three and oh. They beat the Patriots, they beat the Ravens, they beat the Bills. Three winning teams, or three teams over 500. Then they lost to three teams over 500. The Bengals, the Jets, and the Vikings. So, okay, they're three and three. They've won five in a row, but here's who they've beaten. The Steelers, the Lions, the Bears, the Browns, and the Texans. Combined, those five teams are 15 wins, 39 losses, and one tie. You can only play who's on your schedule. Good teams should beat some good teams. They're going to lose to other good teams, which is the first six weeks of the Dolphins' schedule. And yes, you should beat the bad teams. They kind of struggle with the Steelers. They kind of struggle with the Lions. They kind of struggle with the Bears. Then they beat the Browns by 22, beat the Texans by 15. This San Francisco game, I think, is it's obviously a totally different animal than the, the teams that they've seen the past five weeks. And it's a totally different animal than the teams that they've seen, I think, all season in terms of defense and in terms of how efficient they could be on the offense. But I think what Miami does have going for them is uh, coach my head coach Mike McDaniels was offensive coordinator for the 49ers last year. Each team, at least from a running game standpoint, knows what the other wants to do. The X factor is going to be Miami's speed. You can't coach speed, and it's very difficult to coach against speed if your team does not have it. I'm not sure if Traverius Ward can run with Jalen Waddle. He can't run with Tyree Kill. I don't think the other corner, Diamador Lenore, can run with either one of those receivers. Jimmy Ward certainly can't. So to win this game, D'Amico Rines has to abandon the blitz and hope that they can get to Tua Tagovailoa with their front four. They have not generated much of a pass rush the past two weeks. Only got one sack on uh, Andy Dalton last week. Maybe this is the week that at least Eric Armstead comes back at defensive tackle. Maybe Javon Kinlaw does as well, although I'm not holding my breath. What, Tua is no Patrick Mahomes. And they don't have a tight end like Travis Kelsey. They have better receivers than the Chiefs do. But I think with this San Francisco defense, I think an elite or highly accurate quarterback can carve them up. I don't think two is elite. I think on the season, 19 touchdowns and four interceptions. It's a pretty good year. I think Jimmy's at 15 and four, 15 touchdowns and four interceptions. So two is a top 10, top 12, top two. Yeah, I'll say two is a top 10 quarterback. If there's no pressure on Tua, he is going to carve them up. Beyond Waddle and Hill, they do have Cedric Wilson at receiver. They do have Trent Sherfield, which is a uh, former 49er from last year. They have Mike Gusecki at tight end. They have weapons. They can't run the ball that well, although I wonder if between Coach Mike McDaniel, Raheem Moster, and Jeff Wilson, they, I don't know if they want to prove something to San Francisco, but at least make them defend the run and try to be as dangerous with the run as they are with the pass. I don't, I don't think they'll get a ton going, but the fact that San Francisco is going to probably play deep, they're probably going to have to play too deep all game and, and abandon the blitz. They, 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 we should never see a play this upcoming week where San Francisco's defenders are all on the line of scrimmage, leaving one safety back 
with corners playing man on Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. If that happens, Tua's going to go over the top and it's going to be a touchdown or a long gain. They have to just keep everything in front of them, try to slow Miami down. And I think the fact that Miami, for as many good players as they have on that defense, um, again, pedestrian, right? 17th overall, 22nd against the pass, 10th against the rush. Can Jimmy take advantage of it? Can Jimmy take advantage of a low pass defense? A top 10 team against the run, but I think San Francisco can still run on them. If the 49ers had to drop a game in these middle three, this is the one to drop, and here's why. It's an AFC game. This is not an NFC conference game like is coming up against Tampa and against Seattle. I think San Francisco matches up really well with Miami. I think Miami's speed, though, is just going to give them fits because it's not just one player. It's not just Hill. It's Hill and Waddle and Mostert and Wilson can run and Gasecki can run as a tight end and Cedric Wilson as the third or fourth receiver is a big receiver and he can run pretty well. I think this is going to be a tough game for San Francisco. I don't see them. I don't, they're not going to shut out Miami. I don't see them um, pitching a shutout in the second half. And in fact, I actually don't see them winning. I think this is a game that Miami wins 27-24. And if it's a game that San Francisco wins 27-24, I would not be shocked. San Francisco has not seen this kind of speed all year. And I think it's going to take away what they like to do sometimes, which is sometimes Talanoa Hufunga is up on the line, timing a snap, getting in there against the quarterback or a running back. I think San Francisco has to keep everything in front of them because you can't get beat by big plays because it'll take the wind out of your sails. It'll cause this team to play catch up. And as explosive as everyone wants to say San Francisco is, they're not as explosive as advertised. The the Cardinals game might be the outlier this year, and the Cardinals are crap. Let's see what San Francisco does against a Miami defense that's not that good. Let's see what San Francisco does if they have to get into a shootout. I don't think they can completely slow it down against them and play ball. I mean, they got to have at least five to seven, if not more minutes of, of ball control than Miami just to keep it out of two and company's hands. And I think it'll be a good game. I'm excited for it. I think it can go either way for whatever reason. My gut is saying Miami 27, 24 over San Francisco. That concludes our 49er section of the podcast, but stick around plus section content. We're talking college football, Matt rule, getting fired by the Panthers hired by Nebraska. We're going to talk top four in college football. Look ahead to championship weekend, rank all the star Wars shows on Disney plus and make our week 12 or week 13, excuse me, NFL picks. Stay right here. It's plus time. And we are back. And just one quick update before we dive into uh, plus content. So running back Eli Mitchell, because I'm actually recording this on Tuesday morning, I break the 49ers get recorded on Monday. Tuesday is the plus section, at least for this week. So this morning or last night, it was revealed that running back Eli Mitchell will be out six to eight weeks with an MCL sprain, different knee than he had the sprain uh, in week one. That means he's done for the regular season. He'll be placed on IR. They're hoping to get him back for the playoffs. So again, like what I said Earlier in the 49ers section, I look for Tevin Coleman to be elevated from the practice squad. I, I can't imagine Kyle being comfortable with McCaffrey and two rookies behind him, Jordan Mason and Ty Davis-Price. 
Tevin Coleman isn't really a power back, but he's a good running back and he's a good pass receiver. Got to have those two on the roster. Got to have two running backs that can catch them on the roster, especially the way that Kyle is dialing up the offense passing-wise. And then I would keep Price and Jordan Mason active as the uh, power backs. And, and Jordan Mason did show in five carries some, some good runs in addition to this preseason. So an update there. And then one other thing I just wanted to add, I read this this morning. So the World Cup obviously has begun in Qatar uh, Qatar won the bid for the World Cup in 2010, so 12 years ago, and I'm not sure how long they've been working on facilities, etc. There was a report that came out that people, uh, last week or the week before, that people that were supposed to have housing, the housing villages weren't done yet, um, they got to be put up somewhere else where there was lodging for free, and what I read today was the estimated deaths regarding having this World Cup in Qatar, just in terms of of building, infrastructure, getting up the facilities, the stadiums, etc., estimated to be between 400 and 500 people, which is staggering. These people are dying from working. And here was a quote that I found, um, that this comment threatened to renew criticism by human rights groups over the toll of hosting the Middle East's first World Cup, given the migrant workers who built more than $200 billion worth of stadiums, metro lines, and infrastructure needed for the tournament. So now we're not going to sit here and say that Qatar is a, a backwards third world nation at all. Um, but this might put a ding in any other Middle Eastern country trying to host a World Cup. Um, again, the, you know, the Budweiser thing aside, which is still ridiculous that you don't get that in writing weeks, if not months before the world cup starts, but to have this many migrant workers die just to be able to host the world cup. And I understand it's an influx of a whole lot of money for the country, just like whenever there's Olympics. Um, but then there just winds up becoming the long-term, is it worth it scenario? Like, you know, the Olympics, you have the eyes of the world on your country for, two, three weeks, same thing with the World Cup, but but at what price, before and after? After meaning you have these facilities you're never going to use again. Is the investment worth it? I don't know, but just wanted to share that with you. So let's now move on to some college football and Matt Rule of Carolina Panthers fame or infamy, who was the coach of the Panthers the last two plus seasons, was fired by Carolina a few weeks ago. He has been hired by the Nebraska Cornhuskers college football program. So when he was hired in Carolina 2020, uh, his first two seasons went 5-11, 5-12, then went 1-4 this season, got fired, an overall professional coaching record of 11-27. And I guess if you got hired in 2020, or at least Matt Rule, it just goes to show that really nothing good came from the COVID year of 2020. When he was hired... Owner David Tepper, who also owns, I believe, the Carolina Hurricanes um, NHL team. This wasn't the only reason, but this is just kind of shocking because this shouldn't be any part of the variables as to why you're hiring somebody to be a head coach. Here's his quote. He dresses like shit and sweats all over himself. He dresses like me, so I have to love the guy. I was a short order cook. He was a short order cook. Nobody gave him anything. Nobody gave me anything. Okay. But then... 
I'm not sure those are the qualifications that you want to look for in head coach, although Matt Rule was pretty successful in college, and we'll get into that momentarily. He signed with Carolina a 77-year, 77-year, $62 million contract, about $9 million a year. Got fired a third of the way into into his year three season. So if he did nothing and just sat on his butt, he was going to get paid an additional 34 to $40 million. The numbers vary depending on, on where you're reading. To do nothing. Nebraska hired him eight years, $74 million. So a couple things to unpack there. One, I want to know who Matt Rule's agent is. This guy is a miracle worker. He's waving Jedi mind tricks at these owners to give a what was originally a college coach his first crack at the NFL gets a 77-year, why do I keep saying 70? Seven-year, $62 million guaranteed deal. Then he gets fired, and Nebraska gives him eight years, $74 million. Matt Rule's agent, if you are listening, contact me. 49ers plus podcast at gmail.com. It's also on Twitter, 49ers plus podcast. I want you to help me negotiate my next salary, either at my new job or at my current job, because these numbers are ridiculous. Shouldn't get a seven-year deal as a first-time NFL head coach. And I don't think you should get an eight-year deal in Nebraska since you're coming off of the Scott Frost head coaching experience who was an idol in Nebraska, won a national championship for them in the 90s, coached for two years at University of Central Florida, had one good season. If you remember, they went 13-0. They declared themselves national champions. They were not. And that parlayed uh, him into four terrible seasons at Nebraska. Not sure why a four-year deal isn't on the table, maybe five at the most. Because you know if if Matt Rule stinks or sucks after two or three years, he's gone. And you're going to have to eat that money. The only way this makes sense for either organization, Carolina or Nebraska for this long-term contract, is what's called offsets. And professional athletes have these in some of their contracts as well. That means, and I think the, pa- the Panthers had this offset in his contract, that if they were to fire Matt Rule... Any remaining balance on his contract could be offset or picked up by his next employer. So to make the math easy, he was making $9 million a year. Some portion of that could and will be picked up by Carolina, So let's um, by Nebraska. So let's say Carolina owes him $4 million next year not to, not to coach or in the next three years, and Carolina picks, uh, Nebraska picks up the other $5 million. Or something to that effect. Sometimes offsets are 100%. I fire you, but I owe you $5 million. If another team is willing to pay you $5 million next year, I owe you nothing. That's the only re- That's the only way that these eight, seven and eight year contracts make sense is if I'm going to shit can you, that someone else is going to foot the bill for you to work the years that you are no longer working for me, but I still have to pay you. Still, a lot of money. Now, Matt Rule's um, coaching resume in college, impressive. He started out in Baylor in 2013, I'm sorry, Temple in 2013, took over a horrible franchise, coached there for four years, went two and 10, six and six, then 10 and four, then 10 and three, made two bowl games the last two seasons in his 10 win seasons, which were the first two, I believe, 10 win seasons in program history. Lost both of his bowl games, then went to Baylor in 2017, and Baylor at the time was just coming off of tremendous university scandals first year was one in 11 
Second year was seven and six. Third year was 11 and three. In his third year, they were ranked number eight in the nation, was in the Sugar Bowl, and lost to number five, Georgia, 26 to 14. So he he has the resume of being a culture builder and a program builder. Put Temple on the map, put Baylor on the map, and Nebraska is hoping that he can put them back on the map. They have not, Nebraska has not had a winning season since 2016. Since then, they have been 23 and 45. They have not had a 10 win season since 2012. And in their last 10 bowl games, they are four and six. Now, Nebraska was a big name college football program in the 80s and 90s and very, very early 2000s, 2000, 2001. And they were a mainstay in the big bowls, meaning the the main four big bowls, the Orange Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Rose Bowl, they played in once or twice. Once the early 2000s hit, they started to decline. And what's going to be tough, I think, for Matt Rule is recruiting in the breadbasket of the country is tough because the big time teams are generally around the coast and the south, both coasts, and the south of the nation. And I was looking at the college football map just to kind of throw it out there. Let's start in the top left-hand corner of the country, so the northwest, and we're going to go down around Texas, Florida and back up the east coast. So the coast teams, you have University of Washington, Oregon, USC and UCLA in California. Then once you get to Texas, you have the University of Texas, you have Texas A&M. When you get into the south, you have LSU, Alabama, Tennessee, Old Miss, Auburn, basically everybody in the SEC, um, they're not all power, power schools, but it is a power conference, and they are all fighting for recruits from that area of the country. You get into the Flor- into Florida, you have Florida State, you have Miami, you have University of Florida, then as you're going back up the coast, you have Georgia, you have Clemson, as you get into the Northeast, you have Penn State. Now that's just if you're if you're kind of hugging the coast and maybe Penn State is is not really a, a coastal team. Um, <coughs> the the good interior teams that Nebraska may be fighting with is in Utah. You have the University of Utah and BYU. You have Oklahoma and Oklahoma State in the state of Oklahoma. Kansas State, which has had a nice resurgence. Notre Dame, which is always going to uh, be difficult to recruit against. Then you have Michigan, and then you have Ohio State. There are obviously other teams there that I didn't name. I'm not going to name every single one that's a big-name program, but these are the biggest. Even a TCU in Texas has had a nice year. They're they're ranked fourth. Uh, A Boise State in Idaho has historically been a pretty decent team that's always flirting with the top 20, top 25. So that's going to be tough for Nebraska. They are no longer a name. No matter who, you know, Trev Alberts is a former um, University of Nebraska player, uh, an NFL player. He is now their um, uh, director of, of athletics. Um, I forget the exact title. Uh, but I, I hope he has no delusions into what that program is. They are the equivalent of the New York Knicks. The New York Knicks are no longer a name in college basket, in, in, in professional basketball. A lot of people think when it comes to free agents, well, the Knicks have a storied tradition. It's Madison Square Garden. Most of the players that are playing now that are in their 20s or 30s don't remember the Knicks like ever being good. The last time they were in the finals was, I think, 98 or 99 when they had Allen Houston 
and Latrell Sprewell. Uh, and before that was 94 with Patrick Ewing and John Starks and Charles Oakley, etc. And they lost the finals both times. So you're going back 23, 28 years to the last time that they were relevant. They have a relevant location, New York City, Manhattan, and they're still not a relevant team. There is nothing relevant about Lincoln, Lincoln Nebraska. When you're talking about, hey, do you want to play in warm weather in California, in Texas, in Georgia, in Florida, in Alabama, in you, you can't win on location here with, with Nebraska. Um, and I don't know how much they can kind of lean into their into their past when the past is a distant past. You're talking 20 plus years ago. If nothing else, Matt Rule has the resume. Because he, he brought two moribund franchises back from the dead. Maybe he can do the same thing with Nebraska. Nebraska wasn't terrible. I mean, they're, they're winning three, four, five games a year, which, again, is bad. But we're not talking about a one- or two-win program. So good luck to Matt Rule. God bless his agent getting getting these deals for him. If nothing else, he's going to, no matter what he does or doesn't do, Matt Rule is wealthy. Um, but I got nothing against University of Nebraska. You know, hopefully he can he can turn that that team around. So let's stay with college football. Let's get into the college football playoff because this past weekend was the last week of the regular season. This upcoming weekend is conference championship games. That'll be the last game on the schedule for certain teams that are making the conference their conference championships respectively. Then the final rankings come out. Then we will know who the top four teams are for the college football playoff. But going back to last week, the big games that had an impact on the top four Number three, Michigan went to number two, Ohio State, and put a drubbing on the Buckeyes. I don't think many of us outside of Michigan fans saw this coming, especially since Ohio State was, I think, an eight and eight and a half point, eight and a half point favorite. Michigan won 45 to 23. Michigan could not run the ball in the first half. Ohio State had the lead in the first half, and then they came out and had explosive plays, both passing and running the ball, to really put that game away. What was Surprising and disappointing all at once where fans were cheering for Urban Meyer, who is not the greatest human being in the world after the whole lap dance incident at one of his restaurants in Ohio after leaving the Jacksonville Jaguars when he was their head coach, did not get on the plane with them, went back to Ohio. He was kicking the kicker, one of the players for the Jaguars, got fired after a year of just not being adult or not being a leader of actual grown men. Definitely Better served as a college football coach, but um, they were chanting for him, and it's not like Ohio State is in terrible shape with head coach Ryan Day. The other game that really had some implications was USC, thankfully beating Notre Dame. I hate Notre Dame. USC won 38-27, and USC was the number 6th-ranked team in the college football playoff going into that game. So here's what the top 10 looked like before the games were played this past weekend. Georgia at number 1, Ohio State at number 2. Michigan, number three, TCU at number four, LSU was a two-loss team, was a two-loss team at number five, USC at six, Alabama at seven, Clemson at eight, Oregon at nine, and Tennessee at number 10. So Ohio State, number two, lost to Michigan, LSU, number five, uh, lost to Texas A&M, number eight, Clemson, lost to South Carolina, and number nine, Oregon, lost to Oregon State. So those Four teams are going to drop down, LSU, Clemson, and Oregon, completely out of the, the four-team playoff picture. What I think is going to wind up happening this week is, uh, here, here's here's my top six, and I'll say it, and then I'm going to explain it. Georgia's going to remain number one. Michigan State's going to move up to number two. Te- uh, 
TCU is going to be number three. Ohio State will be number four. USC five and Alabama number six. So I'm a big believer that losses shouldn't matter when they happen. You can see in college football rankings that if a team loses in week one and they run the table after that, you're obviously going to see their rankings creep up and up and up and up. It shouldn't matter if it's true that the committee that chooses these four teams looks at your total body of work. It should not look at a loss at the end of the season and drop you farther down than if that same loss happens in week one or two or three and you won all your games to bring you back up. And that's why I'm keeping Ohio State tentatively at number four right now. Yes, they got drubbed at home. But they did get dropped at home by the number three team. If they got beaten 45-23 by an unranked team or a 20-22 ranked team, different story. But it was a rivalry game against Michigan. Now, Michigan hasn't won there since, I think, 2000. So you're talking about like eight straight losses or whatever, nine straight losses, whatever it was. And they did beat them by three touchdowns. But I think Ohio State was undefeated until then. They could drop to five. I, I I just don't see it right now. And I think the committee is waiting to see what's going to happen with USC. And if you look at <clears throat> the total body of work, now Ohio State in the regular season, because they are not playing in their in their conference championship game, Michigan is, they only beat two ranked teams, Notre Dame beginning of the season and Penn State. USC, who's right behind them at number five, beat these these are the ranked teams they beat they beat UCLA they beat Notre Dame and they lost to Utah who was a ranked team in a close game at Utah they are playing USC is playing Utah this weekend in a rematch because that's their conference championship game if USC wins that game it will be three consecutive weeks of beating a ranked team that's going to look very good in the committee's eyes when you're talking about Late season wins, which matter to, I think, a very small degree, and then stringing together wins against top 20 teams, top 20 ranked teams, which is going to be important. Alabama 7, but they're essentially out of it. They they have two losses. Granted, they were good losses. They lost at Tennessee on a last-second field goal and at LSU. At the time, two top 7 ranked teams. But again, you're not going to put a two-loss Alabama ahead of a one-loss Ohio State or a one-loss USC. Just not going to happen. So here's championship game weekend, and then I'm going to predict what's going to happen. So number 14, Utah is playing number 6, USC. Number 12, Kansas State is playing number 4, TCU. LSU, I'm not sure what they're going to drop to after their loss to Texas A&M, is playing number 1, Georgia. Number 3, Michigan is playing Purdue in the Big Ten championship games. Let's, Let's go in reverse. Michigan's going to beat Purdue. They're not going to lose to Purdue. If they lose to Purdue as being the number two ranked team, assuming it's not a blowout, they're still going to stay in the top four. Georgia is number one. If they lose to LSU, assuming it is not a blowout, even if it is a blowout, I mean, say 17 points, nothing, they're not going to lose by 35. They're going to stay in the top four. TCU is currently ranked fourth. I think they're going to be ranked third when they um, college football unveils its top four tonight. They're playing a top 12 team. They win, they're going to stay three. And maybe they move up if a Michigan or a Georgia loses. I don't think either one of those teams are going to lose. There is a very compelling case that if uh, TCU loses, they could still just fall one spot to number four. 
They're a power conference team rally. Like, this isn't TCU from five or ten years ago. They're playing in the Big 12. Uh, and, and they might have been in the Big 12 five years ago. Forgive me, I don't know my TCU history. But there was a time where they were not a power conference team. And they're playing a number 12 ranked team. Again, if they don't get killed, they can drop from three to four. It's possible. USC is, is to me, in a weird way, the wild card in this. If they lose to Utah, they're done. If the top four ranked teams outside of Ohio State, because they're not playing, if Georgia beats LSU, if Michigan beats TCU, I'm sorry, if Michigan beats Purdue, if TCU beats Kansas State, that's one, two, three. Those teams will stay where they are. If USC beats Utah, they're going to leapfrog Ohio State. They're going to be the number four team. They might be the number four team tonight when the when college football unveils its rankings. They may say Georgia 1, Michigan State 2, TCU 3, USC 4, Ohio State 5, Alabama 6. But I think the top three teams, if they lose their games competitively, especially TCU, they're playing a 12th ranked team, I think they can stay in, in the top four because Georgia, Michigan, and TCU are all undefeated. You can't penalize them that severely for a loss in a championship game. And you can't bump a team like an Ohio State or an Alabama into a top four when they don't have a championship game to play on their resume. That's the com- one of the committees, not a requirement, but something that they're strongly looking at to make the top four. So while I think there's going to be a lot of interesting discussion, now if chaos happens, if Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and USC all lose, and there's some blowouts in there, then there's going to be chaos. And then Alabama may say, well, our two losses are just against Tennessee and LSU, and it was close, they were on the road. That could be crazy. Short of that, I think your your top four is going to be Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and USC with a win. If USC loses, Ohio State's going to remain or jump into the number four spot, depending on where they are ranked currently. Okay, moving on to ranking the Star Wars shows on Disney+. Plus. Now remember, Disney purchased Lucasfilm back in 2012 before the first movie, The Force Awakens, came out in 2015, but there was no Disney streaming service until, I believe it was 2018, 2019. But there are 10 shows that I wanted to discuss and rank from worst to first. The first show is called Star Wars Visions, and it's essentially Japanese animation or manga completely unrelated to the Star Wars canon of stories. No um, existing character appears. It's artists, writers reimagining Star Wars in a Japanese environment. So all the characters are new. There's some cool stories and scenarios, um, but it's not interlinked to the main Star Wars narrative. And while I thought it was cool and there are coming out, they are coming out with the second season of it. It just didn't, didn't resonate much with me. Uh, the next in ninth place, Star Wars resistance. So again, another animated show. And this essentially takes place either. I can't remember if it was before, right before the sequel trilogy or during the force awakens or after, but regardless, it revolves around, um, a new Republic pilot. His name is Kaz, and he's sent to this big refueling station called the Colossus, which is kind of hovering um, above an ocean world. I mean, literally like maybe 50 feet above the ocean. And he's there undercover for the, the, the New Republic 
to hear about what's going on with the, the First Order. There's some interesting characters there. This show definitely skews the most for kids based re- regarding all of them that I'm going to talk about. But there's some interesting characters. A lot of them are pilots. There's races that happen around um, this Colossus um, structure. Um, and it was fun. It lasted two seasons. But there really it really felt like an ancillary Star Wars series versus something that was... I hate to say important, but, you know, part of, of the main narrative, whereas everything else uh, basically is. Next is actually the most recent, or one of the most recent shows, Tales of the Jedi, which is also animated. So this was a series of six 15-minute shorts. And there were three stories each about Count Dooku, who was one of the main bad guys in Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, And Ahsoka Tano, who was a character created in the Clone Wars cartoon series, which we'll get into, who was Anakin Skywalker's apprentice, a Padawan, before he turned into Darth Vader. She doesn't appear in any of the movies, and there's a reason for that. She appears between Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. And she's a fantastic character, but the three tales that they had of her and the three tales that they had about Count Dooku, to me... Maybe because they were so fast, they were 15 minutes each, but I was left with a so what kind of feeling. Like, I'm not any smarter about Star Wars or dumber for seeing that. They were just there. The most interesting part of this series, and it it dealt with the Count Dooku version of, of the three um, episodes, was if, if anyone remembers, I don't know how much of The Phantom Menace you remember, so episode one back in 1999, on the Jedi Council there was a female version of Yoda's species, and her name was Yaddle. And she appeared in The Phantom Menace. I don't, I don't even know if she said anything, but you saw her on the council and then walking around in another scene. She, she was never in anything past that. I think she might have been in like a comic book or something, but no show, no movie, certainly. This Tales of the Jedi series goes into what happened to her. They, they focused on her and Count Dooku's relationship in one of the episodes, and it ultimately goes into what happened to her and why we never saw her again. The next show is The Book of Bubba Fett, and this is, I think, a show that a lot of people out there really wanted to like, and they really, really wanted to like it. It was okay. I felt like it was a really uneven show, and basically this details what happened to Boba Fett after Return of the Jedi when they're all fighting outside of Jabba's palace and Boba Fett's jetpack shorts out, he flies into Jabba's sail barge and then kind of tumbles down the sand into that big pit monster with teeth and tentacles called the Sarlacc Pit, and everybody assumes he's dead. He actually comes back in the comic books um, because I guess he was he was wearing the armor that the Sarlacc Pit monster couldn't eat him and digest him, and that was the same sort of thing here. Um, he winds up firing missiles down into the into the throat of the monster, is able to climb out, has to take his his armor off, um, because I guess the desert is so hot, or I can't remember the exact reason. But he loses his armor, and he winds up being captured by Tusken Raiders, the sand people that wear all the bandages on their face and have those goggles on. And he goes from being a prisoner to becoming an honorary member. And there is one really beautifully shot and great episode of him training with one of the Tusken Raiders, learning how to use their staff and fight. Um, But the show, 
just like, like I said, felt a little bit uneven. It was interesting how Boba Fett makes his way to Jabba's palace since Jabba the Hutt died. There was a power vacuum on that part of Tatooine and Jabba the Hutt's assistant, for those of you that aren't, aren't like super Star Wars nerds like I am, he was in Return of the Jedi. His name was Bib Fortuna. He was the, the white guy with like the the tendril that kind of came down from his head and wrapped around his body. And he was the one that greeted Luke when Luke came in and he wanted to speak to Jabba and he said, you know, Jabba's sleeping. And then Luke used a mind trick on him and he wound up, you know, giving him an audience with um, Jabba. What's funny, this character, Bib Fortuna, wound up becoming like wildly overweight. I guess he didn't really have much to do. He's sitting on Jabba's throne and Bubba Fett just kind of comes in and, and just says, like, I'm, I'm taking over now. Another interesting thing about this is one of the characters, another bounty hunter that Fett teams up with, her name is uh, Shenik Fan. Uh, Shenik Fang, and she is played by Ming um, Na Wen, who, if you want to look her up, she's going to be 60. She looks phenomenal. She doesn't even, she doesn't look close to 50. Um, <laughs> God God bless her and her parents and genetics, because she still looks great. And it was fine. And then they had a whole episode that dealt with the Mandalorian from the Mandalorian show and another character. So it was, it was just a weird, so this, this took place between after season two of the Mandalorian, which I'll get into later. So they, I guess they felt like they didn't want people to wait a whole nother year for the Mandalorian season three. So they gave you a little bit of a preview about what the Mandalorian is up to, but it, it just felt odd. I'm not sure if there's going to be another, a season two for the book of Bubba Fett. Um, but I think a lot of people were expecting more from that series. Next is the bad batch, another animated series, which the second season is coming out, I think early 2023. And this revolves around a defective group of clone troopers. So bad guys during, um, episode two attack of the clones. And they all have special abilities. So they, they're they kind of like, they're calling them the Bad Batch because they're kind of like more of the assassins, wild troopers that, that can go kind of off the grid a little bit more, like Black Ops in a way. Um, they were born on Kamino, like in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. That's where all the clones were, were created or grown. I shouldn't have said born, grown. And they were grown from Jango Fett, who was Bubba Fett's father, for just to refresh everybody's memory. They eventually make their way back there for, they want a, a lead for something that they're searching for because they're ultimately seeing that the Empire is bad and they're running away from the Empire and they want to do their own thing, but they have to live as bounty hunters. But they wind up going back to Kamino, that water world, uh, for some sort of a lead based on one of the Kaminoans that, that helped build them. And they wind up meeting and taking on board a, fe a young female, she's probably in her early teens, and they wound up learning that she is a female clone version of themselves. And she also may have force abilities. I think the interaction between like the five, the five different um, Bad Patch characters, they all have distinct personalities, well, voiced by the same person, I believe, but distinct personalities. The addition of, I believe her name is Alpha or Omega, excuse me, Omega, the female character is interesting, and it is kind of a bounty hunting type of uh, show. I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's different than Star Wars in terms of there's no lightsabers, there's no Jedi, no Sith, but you're following this group of bad guys turns, not necessarily good, but neutral. And season two is, is coming up. Next is the Clone Wars, and by Clone Wars, I mean season seven, the final season. The first six seasons ran before... 
um, Disney made the acquisition from 2008 to 2014. It ended somewhat abruptly in season six. It only had 13 episodes, whereas the other five seasons had 20 episodes. And that was, I think, if I remember correctly, a Disney uh, cancellation. But this last episode runs parallel to episode three, Revenge of the Sith, and it follows... Ahsoka generally follows Ahsoka Tano, who is, again, Anakin Skywalker before he turns into Darth Vader, his apprentice, um, what she's been up to, because in the, the Clone Wars, a couple seasons before that, she left the Jedi Order because someone framed her for murder. They ultimately um, acquitted her. They realized she didn't do it, but she just got disenchanted, disenfranchised with the Jedi Order, and she decided to leave and do her own thing. Then she comes back, and she's sort of helping the good guys, the Republic, sort of helping Yoda and Obi-Wan with certain things. And you see things that are happening, like similar scenes from Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, just animated. And how, if she would have been there, if she would have been with Anakin, he might not have turned to Darth Vader. So that that aspect was interesting, and she was kind of dealing her with her own side quest on the planet Mandalore, which is essentially where... Boba Fett and Jango Fett and the Mandalorian are all ultimately from. Um, and what winds up happening there is Darth Maul, who people that haven't watched these shows, Darth Maul, who was cut in half at the waist by Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Phantom Menace, survived and he winds up getting like robotic legs and he appears throughout this Clone Wars show and he he comes to the planet Mandalore and takes over and Ahsoka asks the rebel, I'm sorry, the New Republic for help, the Republic, and they come with, at this point, good guy clone troopers, and they're fighting Darth Maul, and she's able to capture him and free that planet from his influence. Um, and then it just kind of, it ends with, she's, you know, still alive, she's still not a Jedi, but someone that that helps people that need it. Um, well done, season seven. It, I didn't watch all of the first six seasons of The Clone Wars, but it, it closed a lot of loops, at least what I saw, and was really beautiful um, animation. The next series was the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which aired, I think it was this past year on Disney+. Plus. It was originally supposed to be a movie, chopped up into a six-part series, and it follows Obi-Wan keeping an eye on Luke on Tatooine as he's growing up with his Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. And basically what happens is Obi-Wan gets a message from Bail Organa, uh, which is Leia's adopted father, saying that that Leia was kidnapped. And the whole point of the kidnapping was to lure Obi-Wan out of where he's been hiding. And it's interesting because they have, um, you see live action version of Inquisitors who are basically, let's say, Darth Vader's apprentices. Um that are hunting down any remaining Jedi, you know, across the galaxy. Obi-Wan, you know, retrieves Leia. He's trying to keep her safe. There's other members of the rebellion that we meet. And then of course he faces Darth Vader, um, twice more actually in this series, once in the middle portion of the series and once on the, on the season, I don't know if it's the series finale or the season finale, which was well done, and it kind of clearly shows, like, between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan, who is the stronger person with the Force, or better with a lightsaber, or whatever. Well done could have been better. I think it was kind of one of those, of all the shows, a lot of people were probably most excited to see Obi-Wan again. Ewan McGregor did a great job with him in the prequel series. It just didn't, 
it didn't seem to be as good as it could have been. And and this that's not me being a, a Star Wars because Star Wars fans are notoriously difficult to please. <laughs> I just think this series had a little bit more promise than what it ultimately fulfilled. Uh, the next series, so top three, well, top two is difficult. Top top five was a little bit difficult moving things or three, four, and five. But third place goes to another another animated show, Rebels. So this takes place between episode three, Revenge of the Sith, and episode four, the, the original, very first Star Wars movie. And this follows a group of, of rebels in, in the early stages, or the, or the early time of the rebellion, when they're really just kind of rebel cells. There isn't this big organization or network. Um, and it follows, you know, a group of, of five characters, one of which is a former Jedi uh, named Kanan Jarrus, and he's voiced by Freddie Freddy Prince Jr. Remember him from, from the 90s? And he has his apprentice, Ezra, that he's teaching Force abilities to and has Force sensitivity. This was a show that ran for four seasons that introduced those Inquisitors that I mentioned earlier. So seeing them be animated for a couple years and then live action Obi-Wan, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series was kind of cool. The Emperor makes an appearance. Ahsoka Tano again makes an appearance. A young Leia makes an appearance. So does Lando Calrissian. This series was, it's a fun series. There, there are some filler episodes. Um, I guess you could say it's, it's not geared towards kids nearly as much as resistance is. Um, but what I appreciated was it goes into the lore of the force more than any show or movie, any show that's on this list or even movie, none of the sequels, originals, prequels really go into it as much as, as this, um, series does. What it also, um, introduced was Grand Admiral Thrawn, who was in, who was originally introduced in a trilogy book series back in 1991, written by Timothy Zahn. And that trilogy is kind of considered like kind of like the Holy Grail of, of Star Wars books. And really mainly it's because that, that was the first series of novels published after Return of the Jedi. So I think it's a good series, but I think it gets a little bit more love than, than it should. But this is one of the great characters that came out with it. And he is basically an Imperial Admiral, so in charge of the, the spaceships, the fleet. And he is very cold. He is very tactical. Um, they carried over one of his abilities is he studies his opponent's artwork from their from their planets, and it helps them understand how his enemy may attack or defend. And he was, and I remember watching the, the trailer for, I think it might have been season three of four, when they unveiled that at the Star Wars celebration and you and they made the announcement or you saw Grand Admiral Thrawn was part of this, the place went nuts. And at that at that point, that character, Grand Admiral Thrawn, didn't count anymore. He was erased from the quote unquote old canon. Basically, any books from 2015 on were or 14 on were considered actual. This is what happened in the Star Wars universe canon. Anything before that, and there are a shit ton, was kind of erased from existence. But this was one of the nice uh, borrows or pluckings that the the Disney and and Lucasfilm made because it was such a great character and and a great antagonist for the rebels. Vader makes an appearance, and they had a great episode where um, Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, has to fight Ahsoka, his apprentice, um, and she gets the better of him, and then has to flee. But she couldn't bring her, herself to kill him, even if she could have, and has to flee before something explodes on a planet. And Darth Maul is in this also, and you see how his storyline kind of wraps up. And he goes to um, 
Tatooine. I don't remember if he was going to kill Luke or or to recruit him because because Darth Maul at this point hates the Emperor and wants to bring him down. And he meets Obi Wan, who in this point is probably in his fifties, and they have one final duel on the sands of Tatooine, and and Obi Wan kills him for sure. And the very season finale of season four, series finale actually, is a fantastic cliffhanger that's actually going to lead into the live action Ahsoka series that is coming out hopefully next year. <laughs> I don't want to wait till 2024, um, but they left it completely open-ended, which was which was awesome. Uh, in second place, and it just finished, um, Andor. So this follows a character from the movie Rogue One, which is basically the lead-in to the original Star Wars movies. This movie came out in 2017. Really well done, adult, serious-oriented movie. It's not pandering down to kids, and it follows... One of the main characters, his name is Cassian Andor, and it follows how he was a smuggler, like not a great dude, and he winds up doing a job for the Rebellion and winds up joining the Rebellion. But what it also shows, it shows the inner workings of the Rebellion and how these are not good people. These are essentially terrorists. They're people that will leave their own people behind um, in the name of the greater good. It follows Mon Mothma, if you remember, she was the short-haired, the red, short-haired, um, tall, Caucasian lady dressed in white robes in the original Star Wars and in Return of the Jedi that was kind of overseeing, was was almost the leader. She was above Leia, um, and she was actually in, I think, episode three as well. But it follows her on the main city, planet city of Coruscant, because at this time she's a senator, and what she's doing behind the scenes to build and finance the rebellion and how people have to speak in secret and in code and how she has to do her dance as a senator and make sure everything looks okay and sounds okay. Um, And that was great to see actually more of that planet outside of the Jedi Temple. You get to see stores. You get to see basically corporations where people work. It just, it made everything feel more real. I think that was the point of this show, Andor, was to really ground what was going on in the important aspects of the Star Wars universe and the Rebellion during this point in time. And what was great about this, too, is this was 12 episodes, not eight. Usually when you get a live-action Star Wars show, you're getting eight or six episodes. This was a full 12. This was created and written by Tony Gilroy. The fans are already kind of throwing money at him to do more Star Wars stuff. There will be a season two. I'm not sure if there's going to be a season beyond that. But the most adult oriented Star Wars content that Star Wars has ever put out. Really, really well done. Some slow slow at times because it's kind of a drama, espionage, action type of movie, but there's not action nonstop because there is political stuff going on. Really, really well done. And last but not least, if if you're going by process of elimination, The Mandalorian. Um, This is ultimately the show that saved the Star Wars franchise. Because things were in bad shape coming off of The Last Jedi in 2017 and Solo, the Han Han Solo origin story in 2018. People weren't saying that that the Star Wars franchise was in the shitter, but, but fans were just not happy. And this show comes along, and if you haven't seen it, you really should check it out. So I'll talk high strokes. It's about a Mandalorian character who's... Basically think of someone that looks like Bubba Fett or Jango Fett wearing that armor and the the 
planet that they're from is Mandalore. So he is a Mandalorian. And his job as a bounty hunter was to capture something and bring it back. And it was actually working for the Empire. And the thing that he had to bring back in episode, capture and bring back in episode one was Baby Yoda, which I'm sure everybody has seen now, whose real name is Grogu. He captures it, brings it back because it's a lot of money. Then his conscience gets the better of him. He saves him and then he becomes his protector. Um, it's considered, Baby Yoda Grogu is considered his, instead of a youngling, it's, they consider his foundling. But he makes a promise to Baby Yoda, to Grogu, to bring him back to his people. Because the Mandalorian learns over time that he has Jedi powers and he is a Jedi. So he wants to find more of his Jedi people. And that's essentially kind of what, what season one is like an adventure of the week. The Mandalorian and baby Grogu go on an adventure and he's still trying to find Jedi to, to bring him back to. Um, season two was fantastic because it amped up the fan service for all of us that are kind of big uh, Star Wars fans. So the Ahsoka Tano character who has only been seen in animation was brought to live action. Uh, and played wonderfully by Rosario Dawson. So she made an appearance in a couple of episodes. And the finale, and if you want to skip ahead 30 seconds here, go ahead. The finale features, um, at the end of it, Luke Skywalker makes an appearance. And it's a CGI'd version of Luke Skywalker. Mark Hamill played him, but they had to kind of um, digitize his face to make him look like how he looked right after Return of the Jedi. And he just has a scene where he just kind of comes in and, and saves the Mandalorian and baby Grogu and a bunch of other people that are on a ship and are trapped. But they wound up putting out a call for help and Luke's X-Wing comes in and he gets off and he just starts wielding his green lightsaber and just kicking ass, and which might have been the best piece of Star Wars fan service that any of us have ever seen. And baby Grogu goes with Luke to train to become a Jedi and some of that is resolved in actually the, the Book of Bubba Fett because that had an episode that dealt with Luke and Ahsoka and Grogu and, and, and where baby Grogu wants to go. That aired end of 2020. The next season isn't coming out to 2023. So we had a two, say a two year and three month hi hiatus. Um, but again, the franchise that saved Star Wars and set the table up for all the other shows that I mentioned, because if this, if the Mandalorian was not received well, you have to wonder how many, I'm sure they would have made some of these shows, right? Disney Plus needs Star Wars content, but how many of these would they have made if there wasn't this tremendous reception um, to The Mandalorian? And there's additional things coming out uh, up in the future, um, but obviously some of these um, that I'll have a season, season three for Mandalorian, season two for Andor, which is probably a couple years away. There might be a season two for Kenobi. There's going to be a season two for Bad Batch and not sure about um, Book of Bubba Fett yet. But that will conclude this portion of the podcast. Now we are going to go to week 13 picks. Last week, not bad. There were no buys, so I went 10-6, and six, upping my overall record to 111 wins, 66 losses, and one tie. This week, our Thursday night game on Amazon Prime, the Buffalo Bills at the New England Patriots. New England looked good against Minnesota. They found some offense. Then again, that's also because Minnesota's defense is pretty bad. I will take the Bills going up to New England. Pittsburgh and Atlanta, good for Pittsburgh. They had a nice, convincing win uh, Monday night against the Colts. Um, I think they will find a way to keep it going. They just have to control that Atlanta running game. But I think Kenny Pickett gets his second win in a row. 
at the Falcons. Green Bay and Chicago. Now, here's a toss-up because I'm, I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers is going to play. I don't know if Justin Fields is going to play. I'm. Let's assume they both play. I think, even though I don't learn my lesson with the Packers, I think Green Bay gets a win. Jacksonville at Detroit should be a really fun game. Detroit snatched defeat from the jaws of victory Thanksgiving Day against the Bills. They get a very game Jaguars team who beat the Ravens on one of the last plays of the game. They scored to tie the game up, or they scored to go down 27-26. They went for the two-point conversion to beat the Ravens. I like Detroit getting a win at home. They won three in a row prior to Thanksgiving as a home game. They do have a nice offense. Their defense is coming on somewhat. I'll take them over the Jaguars. Jets at Vikings. The Mike White experiment slash potential long-term QB starting is on for the Jets. Get a great week against the Bears. Lucky his first start is coming against the Bears. Minnesota's defense is not much better, but their offense is a lot better than what the Bears can put up. I think the Jets can do enough to control Minnesota, so to speak, but I think the Vikings get the win at home in, in a game maybe closer than people expect. Washington at the Giants. Whoever loses this game helps San Francisco out. Like I said, I, I think San Francisco is going to lose to Miami. Um, I think the Giants get the win if for no other reason than they're at home, and I think when the Giants go to Washington, they'll lose at Washington. Big game in the NFC East as the Redskins are only a half a game behind the Giants, but I'll take New York, Tennessee at Philadelphia. This again could be another, you know, a close game. Tennessee does can make things ugly, slow it down, play good defense, run it with Derrick Henry. But I do like Philadelphia, even though the, the Packers did give them a scare 40 to 33 this past Sunday night. Denver at Baltimore. Man, I don't know if anyone saw the Broncos getting manhandled by the Sam Darnold led Carolina Panthers. The Ravens defense isn't that good, but the Denver offense is atrocious. Give me the Ravens, Cleveland, and Deshaun Watson going back to his old team, the Houston Texans. I'll take Cleveland. Houston has, I don't think they've given up on the season, but they just don't have enough to really make a lot of these games competitive. I think Cleveland gets the win after beating Tampa Bay in overtime. Seattle at the Rams. So the Rams, it looks like they're going to be without, they're definitely without Cooper Cup. They're probably going to be without Matthew Stafford, and they're probably going to be without Aaron Donald who has a high ankle sprain. I would love to see the Rams win this game. They won't. Unfortunately, Seattle will win on the road to start our four o'clocks. Miami at San Francisco already. I think Miami edges this one out 27-24. Kansas City at Cincinnati. Revenge game, maybe, for the Chiefs going into Cincinnati, who beat the, who the Bengals uh, beat the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. I think Cincinnati, again, does enough to beat the Chiefs. The Chargers at the Raiders, last 4 o'clock game. Raiders with a huge overtime win at Seattle. I don't think there's much of a um, trap game effect here because the Raiders aren't really a good team and the Chargers aren't fantastic. But give me the Raiders at home. I think the shine is off of the Indianapolis Colts uh, head coach Jeff Saturday, and I think they're realizing they're just not a very good team. Losing to Pittsburgh this past Monday night. They're at Dallas, the Sunday night game, which should not be the Sunday night game. They should have flexed that out either for Chiefs, Bengals, or Dolphins, 49ers. The NFL needs 12 days heads up to move a game that's scheduled for 820 on NBC to put another game in there. 
There were 12 days ago, there were better games. We knew the Dolphin Niner game was going to be a good game, and the Chiefs Bengals is an AFC Championship game rematch. I would love to see that in prime time. But Roger Goodell in the NFL is, is scared of pissing off Jerry Jones. Even though the Cowboys have a large fan base, no one gives a shit about the Colts. Either one of the two games I mentioned would have been a better one. I'll be watching because what else is on on Sunday night and the Cowboys will throttle Indianapolis. And lastly, Monday night, the Saints at the Buccaneers. Saints played well defensively against San Francisco. Tampa Bay was disappointing against the Browns. And now it looks like they've lost their starting left tackle, Tristan Wirfs, for at least probably three or four weeks. The Saints generally play Tampa Bay tough, but that was also when Sean Payton was the head coach and de facto offensive coordinator to put points up on the board. They're just not doing that, and I think Tampa Bay finds a way to beat the Saints on Monday night. The only two teams on a bye, the Arizona uh, Cardinals and the Carolina Panthers. So that concludes our podcast for this week. Another lengthy one. We're over an hour and a half, but I hope everybody had a uh, wonderful Thanksgiving, wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. We have college football playoffs, uh, college football championship, uh, conference championship games, a lot of good NFL happening again this week, and obviously hockey and basketball and college basketball in full swing. So everybody have a great week and weekend, and we will talk soon. Take care.